Hello. Uh, oh, you can hear that mud on their boots. Sticky. Yeah. Actually, that's the real reason I wanted to go back there. I was like, I'm gonna do actual caving today. Okay. So. <laughs> well, a little bit muddy because the annex is not <laughs> The mud is just right here by the yeah, ladder, exactly. unfortunately. <laughs> I'm Cameron Kopas, and welcome to the Laser Podcast. In this episode, I'll be talking with Dr. Sarah Truby, who is the Cave Resource Manager at Karchner Caverns in Southern Arizona, about what we can learn from caves and how they can be studied ethically. We met and recorded this episode in the natural environment for a cave interview, uh, sitting underground on the floor in the dark. The audio was recorded a little over a year ago, but After recently defending my dissertation, I finally found a little bit of time to edit the audio and uh, put this episode together. I think we might have a few more old recordings waiting to be edited, so hopefully those can be up soon. Now, because this recording was done underground in a big room, you'll definitely be able to hear a bit of echo from the room, people passing by, and a little bit of dripping water in the background. I hope that doesn't distract too much from the interview, and I Hope you enjoy it. I'm here with uh, Sarah Truby, who is the... Well, what, what's your position? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm the cave resource manager at Karchner Cavern State Park Okay. In here in Arizona. And we are in southern Arizona at a... Well, we're inside a cave. We're in, in a, the big room. I don't know if this is a, a big room for everyone, but... Yeah, it's a big room. I don't know if the recording will pick it up, but there's a little bit of water dripping in the background and a little bit of... Uh, echo that we can hear. That's kind of fun. And we are here as part of the Pepper Sauce, Pepper Sauce mm-hmm. Cave Conservation. Yeah, like the cleanup yeah, and conservation it's, project. It's a cleanup project. Yeah. So this is a very well-known cave in Arizona, a wild cave. It's on state forest. Is this National Forest? Yeah, yeah we're yeah. on Coordinate National Forest Land right now. So we're on National Forest Land. It's not a guided cave there's no gates or entrances or parking lots and so this place kind of gets gets a lot of use because a lot of people know about it and it's near a town but there's also a lot of graffiti and trash left in it so yeah the cool thing about pepper sauce cave here is that it actually was the first cave that I have ever that I ever went in Um, so when I was a kid my dad would take my brother and me in here and I don't remember there being a lot of graffiti, but that was now already, um, you know, 25 years ago or so. And it was neat because uh, we used to, you know, my dad was the one that taught us all about which types of lights to bring and how many lights to bring. You should always bring three, you know, how many people to go caving with, uh, those kinds of things. 
Um, and he also taught me one of the best lessons when I was a really little kid. My brother and I, we were sitting here in this big room, and the, he sat down in the middle of the room and he said, okay, find your way out, kiddos. <laughs> and my brother and I looked at each other, and I think my brother was like six or seven or something, and I was eight or nine, and we're like, wait, what? And we crawled all over this room trying <laughs> to get out, and we could not figure it out. We could not remember how we got into the room. We got totally turned around. Finally, we sat back down next to my dad. He was like, okay, sit down, turn off your lights, you know, see what you see. And we also, we sat down, we calmed down for a second, and we actually saw some element of lights of people coming towards us. And we're like, oh, it was that little crawl in the corner. That's how we got into this room. Um, and so that was a really good lesson uh, in general of caving, you know, for me to, to get that sense of, oh, I feel really lost, but let me just sit down for a second and think about it. And then I'd be careful when I'm coming in so that I know which way to get back out. And that was a you know, good lesson to learn as an eight-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> That's really cool. I, I feel like that could go two ways. I would be a little bit worried about scaring a kid. Well, I, yeah. I guess <laughs> then they'd be afraid of caves forever. But uh, obviously that didn't happen with you. Yeah, no, it worked out. It worked out pretty well actually, um, because uh, it it sort of instilled those lessons that I think a lot of people take a lot longer to get to. So a lot of times um, people, you know, they'll they'll wander around in caves a little bit. They want helmets or they want extra lights or whatever, and then um, that becomes a bit of a uh, you know, that's a slower learning process. Whereas, like, I started off right at the bat like that. Um, you know, we're, we all had, I mean, we used bike helmets until we were, you know, grown. <laughs> and we got real caving helmets. But um, it was definitely good to learn those things early so that I could, you know, help teach others as I got older and, and I could always be prepared. Wow, that's, that's really neat. So was your dad involved in caving or did it just take you to a cool place that... No, yeah, my dad was a caver since he was a kid, or since he was young, although he grew up in New York State, and so uh, they had a lot more mines and things back okay. there. Um, and I've not been caving in New York, especially not since uh, White Nose, the bat fungus started there. I try to avoid going to that area, uh, because then all my gear would have to be either thrown out um, or never used again on this part of the country. But... Uh, but I've heard descriptions of really tiny, narrow tubes in the ground. <laughs> it doesn't really sound that pleasant. <laughs> but that's where my dad started caving. And so when he moved out here, um, he definitely, uh, you know, enjoyed exploring the caves down here. Wow. Okay. I guess, oh, so since this isn't normally a caving podcast, I just want to explain what oh, white yes, nose, nose <laughs> is real quick. So white nose is a fungus that affects hibernating bats, where it, it irritates their... Uh, their breathing or their their noses? Yeah, so the fungus will actually grow throughout all of their tissues. Um, okay. So it can grow on their faces and, and their noses, and that's where the name comes from because uh, you'll see bats with white noses. But it also infiltrates their wing, the wing tissue and their organs and everything, and um, it depletes their resources and wakes them up early from hibernation. And then that has the effect of making them, um, they fly outside and it's still all snowy and there's nothing to eat and it actually kills them uh, because they you know, don't have enough resources to make it through the winter. So um, white nose has killed, I think, what's the number, six million bats or so uh, over the last, since 2005, 2006 when it was found in Europe. But uh, it's been kind of actually rather quickly progressing westward. And mm-hmm. now in my current job, uh, now we have a bat colony in Karchner Caverns, and it's something that we're keeping an eye on. Okay. Right. And it only affects bats in North America at this point, right? Well, that's actually a really good point. So um, the strain that we have here 
is ah is a north american pseudogymnoascus destructans is the name of the fungus and when they found it here they started looking other places as well and there are different varieties of the same fungus in europe and in asia and so the dominant variant that we have here in the us is the one from europe so the hypothesis is that it came across to new york at some point and it's been been spreading from there but the bats the hypothesis that first came out when white nose started hitting bats about you know now 12 years ago was that that the bats in europe went through their basically their genocide you know eons ago and now they roost in very small colonies they don't have the the giant millions of bat colonies that we have here in the us so there's a little bit differences in terms of life history and how the bats interact with each other in europe and it may be it's the result of something like this but i'm not a bat biologist so that's just stuff i picked up from reading about it <laughs> okay well yeah, that's i mean that's really important we don't have it here in arizona yet so you're always watching out for it yep yeah so we started visitor decontamination so at karstner caverns oh. we have about a hundred thousand or sorry a hundred and twenty thousand people visiting the cave every year um, and we do have a bat colony uh, and so we just started decontaminating visitors shoes so if they self-report that they have been in another cave or mine since 2005 wearing the same shoes, we spray down their shoes with rubbing alcohol, which is one of the approved chemicals that kills the fungus, according to the Fish and Wildlife Service. And uh, that way when they go in the cave, hopefully if they do have any of the spores on their shoes, we've killed them the spores before they get into the cave. And that way we're hoping our bats don't pick it up from Karchner at least. But or At least from people bringing it in. Right, yeah. exactly. Okay. Is this light okay that I moved it there? Oh, that's fine. I don't know if that's all right. It might be, yeah. I'm kind of shining a light on Sasha, but <laughs> sorry. It is kind of a little bit better than talking to the inky blackness. So. Yeah, yeah. You don't know where anybody is, and then there's just voices. <laughs> Sometimes that's fun. When I first started caving, we, this was the first cave we came in. We always would come here and take cave naps for a little while before we came out. It's a good first cave. And actually, it's a good cave to come back to, too when you've been to a bunch of other caves and you kind of see the value here because I think it's easy to be like, oh, that's pepper sauce. That's the one we all go to. We've all been there. We've all seen it, you know, but there's a lot of really cool geology here. Um, a lot of, you know, big fault-driven passages, so passages that formed along big faults and fissures. Um, there's scalloping all over the ceiling and walls, so that's showing us ancient water flow. Um, and there actually are some pockets with formations left, even though I think a lot of people have probably broken them off. Yeah. I've seen the old old photos from National Geographic right. in the 50s, and this whole area we're sitting in was just covered in, yeah, in formations. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So we couldn't even get to the back half of the cave. Yeah, yeah. At that point. Uh, okay, so you, I mean, you started caving really young. Mm-hmm. Did you always know you wanted to work with caves? No, actually, um, I thought it was a good hobby, and uh, I did start to get really interested in earth science in general. Um, so growing up here in southern Arizona, we have a really interesting summer rainy season called the monsoon, um, which you know because it gets up to Phoenix too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes, actually, this year it looked really good for you. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, but um, so we have you know about half of our rain um, in Tucson comes from the monsoon during the summer, and the other half comes during the winter. And I just thought it was so cool growing up. You know, every year, you know, July was my favorite time of year because the monsoon would start, and you know we'd get home from school at like, three in the afternoon, and then thunderstorms would be you know would be popping up everywhere and then we get all that really severe rain and the thunder and lightning and hail and 
and so i got really into that and at some point i don't know if it was from my parents or me or something sometime in high school we i think probably my mom or dad turned to me and said you know you could study the monsoon you know you don't just have to like be excited about it as a hobby and so they said well why don't you write up a little like page basically a cover letter and we will send it to the national weather service because maybe they would be willing to do like a free intern you know like for a high school student wow which was a really really cool idea uh, and it worked. Um, I basically, I sent in my my cover letter, and I think I even put together a resume, which in high school was not very much. <laughs> but, but I, you know, I said, I would just, I want to learn more about, I know I like weather, but I don't know if I want to do, like, forecast meteorology. Um, and so I worked with someone at the weather service, uh, and it was really cool, actually. I only went once a week for a couple hours, but, um, you know, learning how they take the model data and turn it into a forecast. And then I happened to be there on one day that, um, that it snowed in Tucson, which was oh. pretty rare, like to get snow on the basin floor. Um, it happens about like once every 10 or 11 years. Uh, but I was there on that day, and it was it was just overwhelmingly busy. Like I sort of <laughs> sat in a corner and just like watched it all, and I was like, I'm not, <laughs> I don't want to get in the way. Like this is pretty serious. Wow. But anyways, so the point of that is that at the end of that, um, I was like, okay, well, cool. Weather is interesting, but I don't really want to work in forecast stuff. I'm interested in it as like a scientific phenomenon, you know. Um, so then I went to college. And one of the first, actually my first quarter, uh, we, I took a class called Weather and Storms. So I was like, well, at least I like weather. And we got to like the last two or three weeks of the class and it was on climate and climate change. And I was like, oh no, this is way cool. I wanna, I wanna study yeah. this. Um, and then there was even in that, we had one day on something called paleoclimatology, which is the study of ancient climates, paleo, like paleontology, climatology. Yeah, so, um, so I was like, this is amazing. This is what I wanna do. I wanna use the geological archives on this planet and interpret them to to understand what happened in the past in, with climate, um, and then use that to kind of uh, you know the key is the past, the past is the key to the future. You know, use that to kind of unlock um, what we might face moving forward. Uh, and so I kind of followed that thread throughout the rest of college, and like there wasn't a major called paleoclimatology, <laughs> very specific. Um, so I did earth science, uh, well earth system science, and um, I just I tried to get experience doing past climate stuff as much as possible um and then i took a year off and did some work with fossils and that was kind of fun looking at deep time and the end permian mass extinction when 95 percent of all life went extinct um and then <laughs> i was looking at going to grad school because i i had this like mentality of well i still have questions you know like i still have scientific questions and like where better to go to answer those than to grad school and then i can study those questions and i can figure out the answers or whatever sure it's a little bit naive but <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that's a, i think that's the drive to get most people into grad school and then, <laughs> then you find out what it is like <laughs> exactly but yeah so I, I went to grad school and um I wanted to. I wasn't really sure where I wanted to go, but I, I did uh, apply here to the University of Arizona, back in my hometown, and um, it ended up just being the best mix of potential ways to do past climate research. Like here at the U of A, they have tree ring labs, they have people doing cave formation stuff, they have people doing, um, actually not that many people doing ice cores, but lake sediments, um, ocean sediments, you know, a lot of different options for exploring past climate. Okay. And um, the lab that I went into. Uh, was just trying to start to use skeletothems or cave formations to reconstruct past planets. And so I was like, well, that's cool. I really like caves, and I like the idea of past climate. And it's also a field that's not really well understood right now, so or it's getting better understood as we go on. And so I was envisioning um, doing also a calibration product project 
where I got to go to a whole bunch of caves in southern Arizona to, to sort of measure the current chemical signal of the, the drip water in the caves and the rainwater above the caves. And so it ended up being I built a really cool field project that was essentially just calibrating the signal in um, stalagmites in caves. Uh, so that was part of it. Um, but then <laughs> we're almost done with my life story. Oh, that's that's fine. This is great. <laughs> I'm super interested. I'm just wondering if these people are coming through here. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, there will be some background noise, but we want to get back to sure to you. All right. So we were talking. You we were right saying. It's in grad school. In grad school, yeah. uh, starting studying the getting a baseline for the current water. Right. Yep. Yeah. So I had three or four projects in grad school. Um, one was looking at using stalagmites, measuring the the actually the isotopic composition or the chemistry um, along their growth axis. So basically, stalagmites grow from the ground up from the action of dripping water. And so that process uh, records the chemistry of the water and the isotopic signal, which is kind of cool. Um, but there's some error or some unknowns in that. So in addition to doing a project where I was reconstructing past climates using stalagmites, uh, I also was doing a project measuring the chemistry of the water um, dripping into the cave of calcite growing on little glass plates that I balanced on the top of the stalagmites. Whoa. And then um, also the uh, chemistry and isotopic composition of rainwater at the surface. And so kind of tracing that path and trying to say, okay, we know that drip water in the cave starts as rainwater, but are we actually getting an accurate signal down in the cave? So that was actually a really fun project, although most people who do paleoclimate science are kind of like, oh, calibration project, like we all have to do them, but you know, nah, there's nothing really fun about that. But I thought it was super fun because I worked in seven different caves in southern Arizona. I went to all of them every month for four years uh, so that uh, I could do these measurements and I could get these time series on, you know, what what does the rainwater look like, what does the drip water look like, and the calcite. Um, and it was actually really cool because over a very small spatial area, so all of my caves were in an 80 kilometer by 80 kilometer square uh, in southern Arizona, which isn't actually that big when you're talking about global climate. Um, so I, in each cave I had three or four different sites and uh, each of them would look completely different isotopically, which is interesting. interesting. Yeah. Right, because then now you're saying, well, if I go into a cave and I'm picking a single stalagmite to do a paleoclimate study on, am I getting a signal that's actually representative of the surface? Because I, it could be the one that is, or it could be one of these other three sites that isn't. You know? And so that was a really interesting finding. I did a little more work than that, but <laughs> I found a few other things, but that's the most interesting one. Uh, okay. um, so, so that was two of my projects. I also did a project where I tried to model the process of water moving through the ground to get into the cave. Um, that was in 2010, and since then there have been a number of much better models in mind. I basically treated everything between the surface and the cave as a complete black box, but we just varied the relative size of that box to the soil moisture box and the cave box, you know, so okay. it was very, very simplistic, leaky bucket kind of model, but it did give us some ideas around um, what type of signal we could expect in a cave because it's not like a straight shot from the surface. It's not like you get a raindrop falls on the surface, it goes right <laughs> through a tube, right to a you know, soda straw or stalactite, and then lands on a stalagmite, and it becomes chemically incorporated. You know, it doesn't right. quite work that right. way. Um, and there was some good work from earlier this, um, this millennium, if you will, like in 2003 range, uh, where they showed um, something like 
18 different types of flow paths for drips to get into a cave, where like some will drip into a little pool up above the cave, and then they'll mix with water that's been there for the last you know 10 years, and then eventually some will drip uh, kind of overflow into another area, and it was incredibly complicated um, what happens because you know you can imagine we're sitting in a big hole in the ground right now, but right. in between us and the surface are probably a lot of other little holes. And each of those little pockets can hold on to water for an unknown amount of time. And sometimes water overflows into those and picks it up and then incorporates it as it moves in. And so, so all of those things complicate the, the chemistry. And um, the model is to show basically that, you know, even though we have characteristics of stalagmites like annual layers, like so they, they do uh -huh. have basically stripes or bands um, that people have dated to be annual. So like every year it puts down a layer. But the water that's feeding that is mixing the signal over a much longer time frame. So you're kind of deluding yourself if you think like, oh, I'm measuring an annual signal here, but in fact you're measuring a, you know, averaged, maybe decade-long signal that just happened to be incorporated that particular year in the calcite. Okay. Very complicated stuff. Um, well, at least maybe it's not that complicated, but it was very much like wrapping your head around <laughs> like what is this flag might actually telling me. Yeah, establishing it at first is always the, right, yeah. the hardest part. Yeah, so um, so those are like my three main projects. But then as I continued on in grad school, I started to get um, more ethically concerned because a lot of people doing stalagmite paleoclimate research uh, don't really think about caves as the resources that they realistically are. We're sitting inside a non-renewable resource right now on human timescales. This place took hundreds of thousands to millions of years to form and to fill with formations. And uh, the fact that, you know, paleoclimate scientists go in and just, you know, take off a stalagmite and take it back to the lab and study it, um, I started to be like, you know, this doesn't jive with my personal conservation ethic that was instilled in me as a kid. Sure. Um, so, so I also, one of my um, studies that I did was I basically tried to do two big surveys. So it was a social science project, which you can imagine how well that went over with <laughs> <laughs> natural scientists, but that, that's all right. That's another story. Uh, but I uh, basically I interviewed every single lab that had published on paleoclimate stalagmite work in the past 10 years. Uh, so I sent a survey out to all of them. And actually, I heard back from more than half, which uh -huh. is huge. If you do survey stuff, like getting more than 50% response rate is amazing. So people care about this issue. And anyway, so, so I heard back from them, and then I took the results from there. I basically just asked them, you know, what methods are you using to, stamp, to sample stalagmites? Have you considered other methods? Uh, you know, basically, how are you contributing to cave conservation? You know, those kinds of things. And so then I turned that around, and I sent I sent a second survey out to people who do cave resource management, which is now my job um, at Kirshner. And I said, okay, so you have scientists who want to work with you on these types of projects, but how you know how do you, how would you prefer they sample stalagmites for this research? You know, how can how can we do this in a conservation friendly way? Um, it was actually really cool. Like a lot of the cave managers were willing to be a lot more flexible and think about the holistic picture. You know, everything from you know maybe maybe there's a way to core the stalagmites. So you leave most of the stalagmite in place and then you just take the center. Um, it's a little bit hard to do that. Rocks are a lot harder to core than trees. Like they're just harder. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. So so that's a little tricky. But okay. that's one thing that that managers were thinking like this would be great because then visually it still looks the same. Um, and one of the values that came out of these surveys was that aesthetics is one of the primary um, values that people have for, for cave formations. There are other values as well, like especially now that people are doing microbial work that shows that microbial communities on two stalagmites that are within a meter of each other can actually be completely different. So that's another layer of complexity that I think a lot of, 
paleo climate scientists aren't thinking about yet, but um, we'll get there. That probably plays into the the water chemistry being different. It absolutely does. Yeah, there's a lot more people who are working on um, how stalagmites and speleothems form. That's really interesting stuff right now because there's a lot more microbial activity than I think a lot of people are are thinking about when we we sort of explain it as a simplistic inorganic mineral process when water stripping into the cave. But there's a lot, yeah, definitely a lot more to it than that. Okay, yeah, that's right. And you've got all these, all these bacteria who are also working on it, <laughs> yeah, right. changing chemicals. All right. Uh, so what are the, what's the traditional way to sample a, a, a cave feature? Uh, you, you just cut it off and look at the, the rings. So yeah, that's what I asked. That's what I asked on the survey. I was like, how do you sample stalagmites? And some of the answers were pretty funny. Uh, they were like, honestly, we just kind of kick them over and walk out of the cave with them. Because, um, <laughs> like, that was that. And actually, there's a certain amount of usefulness to that because then, if you are going to put it back in the cave after you've sampled it in some way, mm-hmm. um, you get what's called a click fit. And you can kind of, like, you basically put it back in place until it clicks. Ah, uh, and okay. that's that's something that um, I guess is useful. <laughs> but most of, the, most of the analyses that you have to do uh, to do paleo climate work, you have to saw the stalagmite in half and sample right down the middle. Um, so it's a little bit hard to kind of put it back in that way. But but yeah, so that's the preferred way is just kind of break it off and uh, take it out. Um, some people have sawed things off. There are some studies that ha- use stalagmites that are two meters tall, you know, so you have to go through it with a saw wow. at that point. Um, okay. I also asked how people pick stalagmite particular formations to, to and that was a really interesting, because a lot of people just sort of said, like, I just use an instinct, you know. I don't really have a, like, really, like, some people say, you know, avoid this type of passage or this type of passage, and, and you know, there's there's definitely some thought there, but there were also a lot of folks who were just like, well, this is a place where you're allowed to sample, and that the, you know, land manager was okay with us, you know, sampling to do this science, so this is the slide that we took. Uh, so it, it was really interesting. There's I think there's a lot of work to be done there on that particular topic. Okay. Is any of it avoid this kind of you said avoid this kind of passage. Is that because they feel like that's going to misrepresent the data somehow? Oh, um, yes, possibly. So one of the ones that a lot of people try to avoid, um, they try to avoid taking stalagmites from river passages uh, or river caves because the way that we date stalagmites um, is using what's called uranium-thorium dating. Um, so as these mineral deposits form, they incorporate really tiny amounts of uranium and that uranium decays over time. And like once it's solidified, that's the amount of uranium that you have. And so as that decays, it produces uh, thorium. And so you can measure the relative proportion of different species of uranium and thorium, and you can use that information to give you a very precise date. And we're talking like you could say this particular part of this stalagmite is 432,028 years, plus or minus 20 years. Really? You know, it's, very, it's very precise, uh, which is awesome. Wow. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but the issue with that is that in river caves, the mud will carry in what's called detrital thorium. So it's just like extra thorium. So basically you'll end up with a little bit of extra thorium. And when you're measuring all those relative abundances, you end up getting an age that is wrong because okay. it's incorporated some of that extra thorium. Is that from plants and uh, it's from it, a lot of it's from the rock and from um, okay. from clays and silts and, and dirt and that kind of thing. Um, I don't actually know how much plants affect thorium. They definitely affect carbon, um, but we usually don't use carbon for dating stalagmites, radiocarbon, because there's so much carbon in limestone already uh, that it gives a really artificially old signal. Oh, that was probably that more sense. information oh. than no, 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 that's interesting. So I, I do mass spectroscopy, so right, okay. <laughs> so I'm, I'm really interested in this kind of thing. Um, I just apply it differently. Yeah, for so, sure, yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. 
there was another question in there. Oh, why do they have to be cut? You said ax like axially instead yeah. of radially. Why? Yeah. So. So there's um, more area. Yeah, that's a good point. So uh, primarily, um, the most accurate signal, particularly when we're talking about oxygen isotopes, is right at the center of the slide line, because as the water begins to kind of drip off the sides. Um, you have both the process of off-gassing of carbon dioxide, which you will tend to preferentially lose. I don't know how much you want to go into isotopes, but uh, you'll preferentially lose your lighter isotopes of carbon and oxygen through that process. And you may also have um, evaporation depending upon how close to an entrance you are. So you will also preferentially lose your light isotopes of oxygen. Um, so as you move off-axis, you, uh, you begin to get a signal that is less uh, consistent with the original drip water that is forming that slide and so that's another kind of layer, <laughs> pun intended, no, sorry, it's another layer on the complexity of interpreting these as past climate information because okay. things that are physically happening at the end of the stalagmite, you know, at the growing end of the stalagmite are actually affecting that. Um, there's a competing process called entrainment where if the formation is growing too fast, it like preferentially grabs the light isotopes as it's growing. That made it sound like a person, but... Anyway, wait, wait, <laughs> don't mean to personify stalagmites. Anthropomorphizing uh, <laughs> molecules is perfectly yeah, fine. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so there actually are a couple processes that okay. drive it both different directions, and you don't know which necessarily <laughs> is is driving it. Um, but that, uh, yeah. So that's so that's the reason that you want to get the right down the center because it's the most close to what the signal coming in from the drip water is. Interesting. Okay. So we talked about scientists sampling stalactites and stalagmites, but in the United States, we generally frown on that, at least. <laughs> or ev- <Yeah>. everywhere. <laughs> it's everywhere. actually it's illegal. The Federal Cave yeah. Resources Protection Act of, what, 1988? Okay. Yeah, for, especially for caves on federal lands. So that prohibits anybody taking anything out of a cave? Do, do you know? Uh, I don't remember the wording right now, but um, I think so. And it also prevents things like defacing. I mean, we're sitting here in pepper sauce, and all the graffiti and stuff, technically, um, that could be... You know, if you could find the people that did it, you could pursue them legally for sure. Really? Okay. Because I've heard a lot of things about a lot of people like cave jewelry. You can get. Yeah. See, or or having a a big uh, cave decoration in their home or something, and there is some effort to sort of track them and make yeah. sure that they're not coming from public caves. Yeah, I don't know how successful uh, that kind of thing is. A couple of years ago here at the gem show, uh, or I should say maybe five years ago at the gem show, um, some folks in the grotto, uh, the, they looked, they drove past one of those big convention tents or mm-hmm. whatever, and they saw these giant stalagmites out front. Um, and so they went in and talked to the guys, and, and they were like, you know, that's not legal. Like, I don't know where you got those. but And they insisted, oh, no, no, they came from China. They came from China. But it's, <laughs> that's where, once again, the, the ethic comes in, right. um, where, where it's like, you know, a lot of, actually, honestly, a lot of paleoclimate researchers, even replying to my survey, so I'm not just, you know, generally saying this, but a lot of folks find working in the U.S. really difficult because we do have so many protections mm. for our natural resources here. Sure. Um, and so a lot of people will work in, uh, you know, Southeast Asia, uh, in other parts of the world, and you read studies where people come back with 20 stalagmites from a cave. You know, and that's wow. like personally, that's that, like I said, that's not my ethics. So that's why I, I kind of quit that whole field uh, because I was like, I don't, 
i see how i could do this really well scientifically and how i could be really good at this but the you know the trade-off of doing that to caves is something i don't want to do right once it's gone it's gone forever right yeah and just going to china to do it doesn't mean you're not destroying a cave it just means exactly yep yeah so like my personal ethic doesn't stop at the u.s border right so yeah so that's why that was that's why i made that particular decision um but there are definitely the way to really do if you really want to do paleoclimate science right is to you know look at 40 stalagmites from one cave because then you're averaging across all those slight differences in drifts and then you will get yeah okay this is the climate signal in this place but that's not something that I want to do. So. Okay. Yeah. So maybe some, if somebody could develop some technique, like like you said, coring from right. the backside or something, that would be yeah. really useful. Yeah. Or uh, and there's actually but... yeah there's a lab in Ireland I think that is working on like an MRI scanner that's portable, uh-huh. so they can take it into the cave and they can at least image the stalagmite and you can see things like ooh are the growth layers flat or are they you know are they concave or you know what, what do they look like because um, that can tell you something about how it's how it's mineralogically reporting the signal as well. That's very cool. Yeah. All right. So after this, what did you change your? So since you said you decided you didn't want to continue studying this, that was still in in grad school, right? <laughs> yes, I made that decision during grad school when I was still writing. But yeah, uh, so I basically at that point I said well, I'm going to finish this up, and then I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. But I just started looking around for different types of jobs, and that was you know scary as usual. But I found a couple of different jobs that were more at the interface between science and society, which is I really I really like taking science and making it interesting for people, um, or you know talking to people about science, and, and uh, I just I felt like that was something that was more the direction I wanted to go. Um, so I ended up doing a job that was focused on service learning or helping faculty develop classes that, in my case, related to environmental sustainability and um, had students doing real-world work with like nonprofits and government agencies and land management uh, organizations and um, through that ended up teaching. Uh, so I taught for I taught a class for four years um, that was focused on open space management and resource management and I was like, man, this is a really cool field and I I wonder you know what kinds of opportunities are out there in that for someone who has a background and like a PhD in geoscience but wants to move more to this like applied area. Okay. Um, I honestly, I, uh, I only told two people, um, I was like, I'd also really like to come back to Southern Arizona. Like this job was in California and um, I was working at Stanford and I, I was like, I just want to come back to Tucson. Like I miss the monsoon, you know, I miss the caving community. Um, I miss the caves too, like the caves that I did all my research in. And, um, and so I told two people that and within like two or three months, both of them were like, Hey, did you hear about this job at Karchner? Oh wow. Okay. <laughs> uh, and I was like, no, what job? Um, but I, they sent me the posting and it was like, we want someone to do resource management and uh, research and science kind of collaboration and organization with outside agencies. And I was like, well, that sounds hunky-dory. Sounds like it's made for you. <laughs> yeah, because I can, I can definitely, I, like, I can do the, the research and science coordination. Um, I'm also working with some researchers right now to do projects specific to Karchner, so it's kind of neat that I get to keep my foot a little bit in that science world. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm setting up one social science project and then one um, cave science project. And then most of my job, though, is resource management and making decisions about how we're managing the cave and protecting Karchner Caverns so that uh, we can, you know, keep it the way it is for the foreseeable future, at least. So, 
Yeah, so it was definitely, it was all serendipity. Really lucky. You get to keep your feet in both (laughs) research science and And management. And then learn a whole heck of a lot about management. (laughs) I mean, it's definitely, um, it's an adjustment, though, because I've been working, even my job doing service learning was working exclusively with academic scientists. You know, and now I'm working with people that some of them don't have any science background at all. Um, They went to school for other things entirely. And so uh, I also get to use that part of my brain that lets me interpret things for other people and say, this is why this is important. You know, we're not just doing this because we like to make work for for ourselves. So that's definitely something that it's fun, but can also be, you know, it can be a struggle. Is what science, oh, you, that was your question, was um, what's left to be done on a kid that's been studied for like oh, yeah. 30 years? Yeah. yeah, okay, so yeah, you're working at this, this Karsha Cameron's uh, state park. Uh, yep. It was... <laughs> yeah, so um, Gary Tennant and Randy Tufts uh, discovered the cave in 1974. They had been in the sinkhole previously, but this time when they went into the sinkhole in that particular trip, uh, it had this kind of warm guano-y smell, so they knew there was something back there, at least a whole bunch of bats, you know, um, and so they kept exploring, kept exploring, and eventually chipped open an area and made it through into, into Kirchner. Um, and then, there, the, I mean, I, I know a lot of folks in Arizona probably know the a little bit of the history, but... They told the family, the family, they went back and forth figuring out what should we do about this, um, you know, how do we protect this cave. Eventually it got transferred to state parks in, I think, 1988, um, and then became the process of saying, okay, how are we going to develop this cave so that we can be, you know, wheelchair accessible, we can be the, uh, we can use the state-of-the-art development techniques so uh, we can protect the cave for, you know, from the, the challenges that we have at other caves like lint and algae and people touching things and, you know, so what, what how are we going to protect the cave from those things, um, how are we going to design it, and how are we going to design the park to protect the cave and, and all that. Um, so it was a very, one of the coolest things that actually happened for Karchner is that before they even started developing the cave, so putting in trails and tunnels and things, is they actually, in I think 1988, they started studying the cave. So they got what we now call the baseline studies, um, where they were they were basically measuring you know temperature, humidity, the invertebrate life. The, they did a fossil study as well. They did geology. Uh, basically, they did a holistic systems approach uh, to understanding the cave. Um, so that way, we would have something to go from. If we if we decided to do something 10 years later that might impact the cave, we could say, well, what did this do to our baseline? How does it compare to our baseline variables? It actually, uh, you know, now that I've done a lot of work interacting with other land management agencies, like at my previous job, a lot of them have to make decisions with imperfect information because there just isn't time to do the research or there isn't money to do the research. Sure. But in our case, like we have a, you know, here's how it used to be, you know, so like we need to manage this resource to get back as close as possible to how it used to be. Um, and so that could be everything from, you know, replacing the lamps to LED lamps, which we're um, hopefully doing this year. So that way we can pull the temperature back down just a little bit to because we're running a few degrees above what we were when the cave opened um, okay. or before the cave opened. So it is it is true that, you know, there's been, what is 1988, 30 years of study uh, in Karchner. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been off and on, though. It hasn't been. Uh, the only things that have been continuous are things like temperature and humidity monitoring. So that is pretty cool because um, I don't know of any other cave right now that has a 30-year data set in, of temperature and humidity. Yeah, so that's pretty cool. That's great. Yeah. And I think this whole, this whole conversion from a private thing to a public state park is kind of a model success story, isn't it? It is, although one of the challenges of working for an agency that doesn't have a lot of natural resources personnel is saying, you know, here's why it's important that we're measuring the temperature every couple of weeks. 
you know, and say, it's like, well, why don't we do that every month? Why don't we do it every six months? You know, and so, so there's some challenges there in, in trying to explain why we want to do certain things certain ways. Um, but yes, it is definitely, I mean, if it were a private entity, it would just be depend on the, you know, the goodwill or the, the thoughts of the commercial owner mm -hmm. to be saying like, oh, we should probably measure temperatures or, you know. Yeah, so that, that is true. We definitely, we take it very responsibly, or we take it very um, to heart that it's our responsibility to steward this resource for sure. But yeah, I had another question. Okay, what's oh, yeah, what's, what's, yeah, so, so <laughs> it's, it's been studied for this many years. What, what are the new things that you learned by continuously studying a cave, other than just tracking what, what has changed because we added a, a ramp and an elevator? And right, right, yeah. Kind of um, we don't have any elevators, but... <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, a lot of caves do. They do, um, absolutely, they do. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there is a lot left to understand. One of the, the projects that I'm hoping to start this next calendar year um, is actually looking at cave air which you might think is not that interesting. Um, but the way that we've been sampling carbon dioxide levels in the air since before the cave opened is once every couple of weeks we have a handheld meter that we take out and we measure the carbon dioxide. It does vary uh, in caves for a variety of reasons that we can talk mm -hmm. about later. Um, <laughs> That's a little more sophisticated than the traditional caver method with a, a big lighter and you right, see right. how it's high like, uh, the uh, flame <laughs> floats. <when. laughs> I actually did that once. I put dry ice in my sink and I used the lighter, and it was really cool. I put it on YouTube. Okay. But right. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that's that's why I always carry a lighter in my cave bag, so that I can tell if there's bad it? air. Do you test it, though? I because, test uh... it occasionally. Okay, because yeah. sometimes you can. You don't want to get scared. Oh, no, my lighter won't light. This, this must be bad air. But, yeah, no, I mean, CO2, yeah, in carcer, it doesn't ever get that high. Um, it goes up to about 5,000 ppm, um, and humans can breathe up to, it's not recommended, but up to, like, 25,000 to 30,000 ppm. That's where you start to get some of the... Uh, bad impacts. So we're definitely much lower than that. And most caves, the highest in this area is at about 10,000 ppm. Anyways, so so the interesting thing about CO2, and I'm working with a postdoc at the University of Arizona who studies cave air, is that the assumption about it is that it kind of varies slowly, seasonally, you know, annually, that there's these you know, long sinusoidal <laughs> patterns of, of CO2 variability. But he's already showing, and we did some sample measurements at Karchner, that um, CO2 varies on a daily basis. Really? And actually, like, the cave breathes on a daily basis. Like, it'll breathe in, out, in, out, in, out. And um, that is really cool, and not many people have shown daily patterns in caves. They're usually thought of to be very slow-moving systems. By breathing in and out, I mean, is that, is that different than the pressure outside changes, so it sucks all the air out and then pushes more air in. It's different than that? Yeah, yeah. So a lot of people think pressure is the main driver of cave air breathing okay. um, or cave air exchange, but uh, it actually tends to be temperature and then related to that, the density of the air. Um, mm. So at an entrance like this, we have pepper sauce, which is sitting, and the entrance is kind of just right on the hillside, and there's a little wash beneath it. Yeah. So you can imagine when it's super hot outside, nothing really happens to the air in the cave, right? It just like sits here. When it's really cold outside, though, the cave air is warmer, and it'll start to kind of, you know, like leak, inch leak out, out a little bit and kind of leak out, exactly. Um, and, of course, that doesn't even count. That's just the entrance entrance. It doesn't count all the other little fissures and, and faults and fractures and things that air can move through here. Yeah. Um, so so because of that, you know, there, there are diurnal patterns here in temperature variability, and, mm -hmm. and there are also pressure differences, and, and wind can also ventilate caves um, in some places. And so kind of nailing down the specifics of how something as simple as cave air varies, um, that's like one of the projects that hasn't been done before, um, and it'd be cool to do it at Karchner, just because, yeah. you know, I work there. <laughs> so, cool. so it'd be neat uh, to see. And also, Karchner has a really, um, it's in Escobrosa limestone, like a lot of these caves are, um, mm -hmm. but it's a particularly faulted block of that. 
so uh, it probably has the opportunity to breathe a lot more than some other caves. Um, and so kind of nailing down spatially what the patterns of cave air breathing looks like, I think would be really interesting. So that's an example of a study that it's based on data we've been taking for 30 years, but just taking data in a different way at higher resolution and what that can tell us about the cave system. Okay. And then this cave, because Karshner is so public, how much CO2 effect do you have from literally just people going in and out? Yeah, that's a good question. So there in there's a, one study that I know of that looked at tourist impact on CO2. Um, and there probably have been others since then, but um, I think it was about a 2013 paper or something. Uh, it looked at the National Recreation Day in China, um, okay. where everyone kind of stops work and goes and does something recreationally. And uh, they, they also happened to measure CO2 variability in this cave. It was a cave they were monitoring. And there was this weird little like, hump in, in the, on the, the National Recreation Day because ah. there were like thousands more visitors to the cave at that time. Um, I don't remember the exact numbers, but it was something like a, you know, like three ppm per person or something in that particular cave. Really? Yeah, yeah. it was. It so was it's me- it's measurable. Yeah, like but that was once again when there was like thousands of people. I, I yeah, I shouldn't I shouldn't ballpark a number. I don't remember the number. Um, but it was it, in that cave, it was measurable, the little blip. But you know, a cave like this where the where the CO2 is already at 10,000 ppm, mm-hmm. you know, even if there were probably. 100 people in there breathing, you know, it won't, even though we breathe out air at about 30,000 ppm, which is why when we start to get up there, that's why we have trouble with um, the air, uh, if cave air is that bad. But like, I, it, you're already pretty high, so you may not notice as much of a change. Okay. But I mean, if I were stay, sitting there and breathing into my CO2 meter, you would see it. So. Right. Right. But that's different. It's, that's different. Than right. It mixes a lot. Yeah. There, there, ha- there is a lot more air than there is right, in my exactly. lungs. Right. <laughs> exactly. long air. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Interesting. So yeah, that, and then there's the other the other study I did want to mention. Um, I'm also doing a social science study, which is something that has not been done yet at Kirchner, hmm. um, where we're looking at different ways that we can talk about uh, how how can we talk about cave conservation so that it actually sticks with our visitors. You know, six months later they're making a decision to do something that relates to cave or water conservation. So that's kind of a neat social science study that no one's looked at yet. Right. Okay. But yeah, I mean we're really open to if anyone comes up to me and says, hey, I want to do this study. Um, we do ask people to do proposals so that mm-hmm. you know we can see kind of the thinking because I'm not an expert in everything and, and we have a committee that reviews them and uh, sort of decides whether or not the impact on the cave is balanced by the potential benefit um, from the science okay. um, and sort of sort of looking at it like that. And there's no like national ethics board for, for geophysics kind of studies like there is with animals, right? Right, or and humans or too. Or humans, the, in, right? Uh, uh, the, uh, um, institutional Review Board for Humans. Um, no, there is not. Um, that's something I would like to work on, particularly for cave work, but yeah, we're not, we're not working on that just yet. Okay, it's more of a someday thing. Yeah, well, yeah. so we're working on, um, we're working on collaborating across labs at least to share resources so that if someone has sampled stalagmites from China and they're done with them, um, they can make them available to other researchers instead of those researchers going and getting more stalagmites. Did we cover stuff? <laughs> I think I think we covered everything that I want to cover. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you a lot for yep. going to do this. I, I know hope that it is actually editable and usable and not just me talking a whole bunch about games. <laughs> I'm sure it will be great. And I, I don't know, I hope this doesn't feel like like work because yeah. <laughs> you talk about caves all day to people. Right? You know, I don't though because like everyone at Kirchner like, has their role in their job, you know. Uh-huh. And so I do talk about caves to people outside of Kirchner, but not always every day. Okay.
Let's see, do I need to do anything yeah, to, to turn this off? Or is it, oh, there's a rock in my pocket. <laughs> How did that? That's a geology moment right there. <laughs> All right. I want to thank Sarah again for that great interview. Now, since this was recorded about a year ago, or a little bit more than that, there are actually a few updates to some things that we talked about. Sarah wanted me to mention that while we originally said white nose was not yet found in Arizona, uh, the fungus has been detected in some Arizona caves. Not in any bats yet, but uh, we also talked a little bit about CO2 detection to using a lighter, uh, but some recent results from Sarah's CO2 study have found that that lighter trick doesn't work in every situation, so we shouldn't rely on that, and I'm sure there'll be more information about that in the future. If anybody has any questions for Sarah, you can send me an email, uh, send it to Cameron at laserpodcast.com, or leave a comment on the website or Facebook page, and I will forward it to her. You can learn more about Karchner Caverns at their website, azstateparks.com slash Karchner, that's K-A-R-T-C-H-N-E-R, or on their Facebook page, Karchner Caverns SP. And if you want to learn more about caving in general, I'd recommend finding a local chapter of the National Speleological Society, or the NSS, and you can read about the sport, conservation, and research methods that they promote at caves.org. Again, I'll have a link to all of these in the show notes, and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening. This has been The Laser Podcast, or Let's Agree Science and Engineering are Rad. Show notes are available on the website at laserpodcast.com. You can send us an email, contact at laserpodcast.com. Contact us on Twitter at laserpodcast, or find us on Facebook. You can leave a rating on iTunes or listen to us on Stitcher. The intro music is Open from the band Crying, and the outro music is Dreams Are Maps from The Wild. You can find more information about the show, links to all the stories we talk about, in the show notes on the website. Thanks. Bye. Yes, this is Sarah. Well, I've heard stories. <laughs> You've heard stories from whom? I don't know. Ray. <laughs> Ray. Oh, from Ray. So they're going to be interesting. Oh, very interesting. Wait a second. Are they going to be rescue stories? <laughs> Ray and I oh, don't have that much rescue stuff in common because no? we haven't done a lot of rescue yeah. stuff together. Okay. Most of Ray's stories involve, oh, so-and-so got so-and-so trapped. Like, yeah. Or, oh, yeah, <laughs> like last time I was here somebody <laughs> died. That's my favorite rope. Three of my friends died on it, you know. Yeah, oh yeah. Every every time you're on rope, he has some story about. Oh, this reminds me of the time somebody died. Oh <laughs> like, great, this is my first time on rope. Thanks, yeah, Ray. <laughs> but then when you don't die, you think, okay, at least I did I better than yeah. <laughs> yeah. You have to pass that the the luck skill. 
curve right. where yeah. your luck runs out and then your skill has to be high enough to... <laughs> I like that. Have you, is that. have you seen that like somewhere? Yeah, yeah. I, I think I, I think it was in maybe a climbing book or a mountaineering book or something. When you first start out, you have luck, and then your luck is slowly dying out. <laughs> I like you, that. No. Yeah. That's why you need rescue training. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs>